you would find the book of Ephesians. We aren't going to read the whole book this morning. We could. It would be a good thing. We are going to read quite a bit of Ephesians through our tour this morning. But let me, let me pray first, and then, and then we'll dive right in. Father, we do pray. We do join our hearts with Paul's heart as he prayed in Ephesians 1 that you, the Father of glory, would give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. We pray that today, by your spirit, through your book, that we would know Jesus better, that you would pull the veil back, as it were, help us to see another facet of his glory. I pray that we would all lean into him by faith and that we would be different than when we walked in. Spirit, we pray that you would come and help the ministry of the word. Pray that Jesus would increase and we would all decrease. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, here we are this morning, the church at Ephesus, and I'm looking out to this good-looking group of people, a lot of Gentiles, a few Jewish brothers and sisters in the house. And as we think about our history, His grace is amazing, isn't it? The alienation that we once had with God and with ourselves was only overcome by the gospel. And here we sit, a new community, a new humanity, if you will. And speaking of community, I'm thinking now about the world around us. It doesn't take much to look outside through these windows and be reminded of our old lives, to see the temple of Artemis and all of its pagan worship and idolatry. And many of our minds can go back there to how we served idols, But when the gospel came, we turned by His grace to the living God. And many of us have families that are still out there serving in those temples, worshiping false gods. Several of us are heartbroken because we have children who are still out there serving, worshiping gods of stone and wood. Now, many of us can remember also for two hours a season ago where we heard the roar, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours over and over coming from the theater. Well, how thankful we, we were then that Paul was with us, strengthening us in those days. We're thankful for his ministry and how the gospel is spreading now. Apollos, who was with us for a time, indeed planted and Paul watered, and praise be to God who caused the growth. Speaking of Paul, many of you have asked me if I've heard from him, if we know his whereabouts, how he's doing. We've not heard from him in many years. But the good news is, I heard this this morning, that Tychicus, who's from this area and who was a co-laborer with Paul, Paul called him a brother, a faithful minister. He just got into town and he's planning on being with us tonight. And it's my understanding that he has word 
from Paul for us, a letter that he's going to read to us. So please make plans to be here tonight. Now, obviously, this is all in the realm of sanctified imagination, and likely they didn't meet in a cafetorium. Though it is true that they were a diverse church, Jew and Gentile, and it's very true that they lived in a very pagan culture. It's also true that Paul's friend, Tychicus, brought a letter to the church there to encourage them in their faith and help them understand who they were in light of God's good gospel purposes and how they were to live as a new community of faith. It's also true that the church at Ephesus had Paul and Timothy and John, the Apostle John, as pastors through their small, short history. Well, this morning, as our brother Tommy prayed, we do begin a new sermon series in the book of Ephesians, which will take us through the end of June, so somewhere around 18, 19 sermons as we stand today. So about four months in the book, a little more than Judges, and certainly feels a little lighter than the book of Judges. Now, this morning's sermon is meant to be an introduction to the book. We're going to look at the book as a whole. As I said, we won't read the whole book, but we are going to read quite a bit of Ephesians this morning as we consider it um, in a 10,000-foot view. I'll say more about this later as we try to apply it, but I'm praying that this little book, six chapters, 155 verses, has its way with our congregation, not just over the next four months, but much longer than that, our lives, or rather that God would have his way with us through this book as we lean into it. There are two prayers in the book of Ephesians. Many of those were prayed this morning, used as fuel. I would commend those to you to use this fuel to pray for us, your brothers and sisters. John McKay, he was a former president of Princeton Theological Seminary back when it meant something, said this when delivering lectures on the book in 1948. This is what he said about the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is the greatest, the maturest, and for our time, now this is 1948, I believe it to be true today, the most relevant of all Paul's works. For here is the distilled essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and most consummate compendium, I had to look up the word, summary of a larger book or a larger work, a compendium of our holy Christian faith. This letter, he goes on to say, is pure music. What we read here is truth that sings doctrine set to music. It seems true, and when we look at Paul in Ephesians 1, and all he's doing is praising God in the eulogy for what he has done in salvation history for him and for the Gentiles. You get 18 or 19 sermons with us. Martin Lloyd-Jones would agree with John McKay, that preacher of old, many of you have heard his name, preached 232 sermons in series on the book of Ephesians. Maybe someday. It's a dense book. You know you've been in it. You've looked at it six chapters. There's a lot going on in a small space. Well, today's sermon is meant to be a little different. As I told you, it's the intro as we consider the book as a whole. My aim 
is to walk you through this book like that guy on the double-decker bus taking a tour with a microphone, pointing things out as we go. You can't get off the bus today. But next week, Pastor Jordan's coming in in Ephesians 1, and he's going to take you off the bus, and you can walk around for a little bit longer, and you can look at things a little bit more. And then the next week, you'll get on the bus again and get off the bus. But today, we're going to walk through in a summary fashion. Well, here's my brief outline for today. Two themes that I want to draw out. So two themes, you can call them two points, two themes and five applications at the end before we close. So I want to draw out two themes from Ephesians with you, and then I have five application thoughts I want to share. We should ask as we start, why did Paul write the book of Ephesians? A lot of ink has been spilled by a lot of people smarter than me about why he wrote it. But one conclusion that keeps coming back to the forefront is that it was written to address, it wasn't written to address a problem, rather. It's not the Corinthian church where Paul went in, in love, going after sin, the people there, teaching them how to do church because of a problem. It's not Galatians where Paul starts from the very beginning going after another gospel. It's not even Colossians, which is a very, very similar book probably brought by Tychicus as well, made its rounds to Laodicea. It's not even like Colossians, where Paul was going after the mysticism there, exhorting the church not to be taken captive by philosophies and empty deceptions, but not here. In Ephesians, Paul seems to be encouraging this diverse congregation who, to quote a commentator, were in need of inner strength, further knowledge of their salvation, greater appreciation of their identity as believers, and as members of the church, increased concern for the church's unity and more consistent living in such areas as speech, sexuality, and household relationships. My interpretation from that is Paul's purpose in writing, generally speaking, is identity formation for this little church. This church that's very diverse, has a lot of different people in it, Jew and Gentile, alienated from God once, alienated from themselves once, now united. He wants them to know who God is, what he's done for his glory, namely in Christ's gospel work, his cross, his resurrection. He wants to see, he wants them to see rather what the gospel is and how they live now in light of what's happened to them. It's like taking the words, I once was blind and now I see, and Paul's helping them understand how bad their blindness was, who they see now, who made them see, and now what they're supposed to do with their sight. Identity formation. I heard John Piper say once that one aspect, one of pastoral ministry, is helping people understand what's happened to them in their conversion. Everything's so new. We have Ephesians, Identity Formation 101. Well, a comment on how the book is laid out is still some of the introductory notes. It's laid out perfectly in six chapters. You have chapters one through three, and then you have chapters four through six. Chapters one through three show the triune God's plan of redemption, salvation history. Many of you know that, you've read it. It shows how he created a new humanity through Jesus. Chapters 4 through 6 speak to how the new humanity is supposed to live with one another and out there. 
So chapters one to three is the indicative, what God has done, is doing, and what will do. Chapters four through six is our response or what we do. Okay, with that in mind, all introductory, let's consider two themes. Certainly there are more, but two themes that run through this book that you will hear over and over as we move through in the weeks to come. When you hear Ephesians, you should hear the words reconciled and unity. Reconciliation and unity. You can say it a better way, but when you hear Ephesians, I want you to think about reconciliation or being reconciled and unity. There's other words that keep, are repeated in the book, grace, mystery, peace, aliens, together, love, and many more. But for today, we're going to consider those two themes that seem to dominate Paul's thoughts and speak to Paul's heart for the saints that he's writing to you. Some of you have the ESV study Bible, and maybe you've already flipped there to look and see what the commentator says about this book. This is what it says. I'll just show my hand. Quote, there are two main themes of Ephesians. One, Christ has reconciled all creation to himself and to God. And two, Christ has united people from all nations to himself and to one another in his church. That's, those are the two main themes that are running through the book of Ephesians. Reconciliation in unity. So when we think about Ephesians, there's a, a cosmic reconciliation by Christ through his gospel work. And in that work, he's also forming a new humanity. He has formed one, the church, a united body. Chapters 1 through 3, we could think of it as God's reconciling work in Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6, living in the reality of that reconciliation. How do we live? Okay, well, let's read some of the book of Ephesians. Look with me at chapter one. We're gonna read this wonderful eulogy from Paul beginning in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him according with a view rather, verse 10, to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, and who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory." In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, Jordan is going to, he's slated right now, Lord willing, to preach next week. Someone will preach that section. 
And as I said, we'll get off the bus a little bit longer, but I want to focus our attention as we think about those two themes that really are on one road. When you think about those two themes, reconciliation and unity, it's like two lanes of the same road and they're just running through the book, not going in different directions. But I want us to look at verse 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. Your version, that was the New American Standard, may say in the ESV, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Or the Christian Standard Bible, verse 10, as a plan for the right time, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul's worshiping over God's plan of redemption from eternity past, present, and future in this eulogy. And he says in those verses that his divine purposes all find their yes and amen in Christ. The instrument through which the cosmos, the universe, The church, all of it in this passage will be summed up in him. We learn that he's the head of the church in Ephesians 1. Paul's prayer, he's highly exalted, he's resurrected. He's the focal point of all of this summing up, uniting all things to him and however God's going to do it. He's going to unite all things, restore the harmony, take what is broken and alienated. God's going to bring it all together in Christ. It's like we're looking at the, the, the plan for all you construction-minded folks. We've got a, a plan of the building, and God lays it out in Ephesians 1. And it's not fully built yet. We can't see it all the way that God sees it, but one day it will be finished, and we'll marvel. So what of this reconciliation in uniting all things in Christ? Well, on the heels of his talk of redemption in verse 7, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Paul talks in verses 9 and 10 about a redemption, a reconciliation where Christ will unite all things to himself. There's a day at the end of time, history, future, an eschatological time later on where all things will be united in Christ. Paul tells us in Ephesians that both Jews And Gentiles, he's going to go on to say it, which is part of this theme, are included in this reconciliation, this new humanity, the church. And chapter 2, which we'll look at, is clear about our alienation and our need for forgiveness and that it's all about grace. What caused this alienation, this need for reconciliation, where all things will be summed up in Christ one day? Sin, right? Sin entered the world. We could just go right back to Genesis and we know our first parents, the first Adam. The first Adam was charged to keep and cultivate the garden in a sense to maintain the harmony there. But sin entered in because of his disobedience, a treason. And now all of this disorder, we know from Romans 8 that creation groans, We know when we go back to Genesis, it's a lot harder to work because of the ground. There's a curse. All of this disorder. And if we go to the heavenly realms, even before Adam, Satan fell 
took his angels, cosmic chaos, disorder. So when Paul's thinking about reconciling all things together, summing them up in Christ, we have all this disorder, all this alienation and need for reconciliation. Both man and creator groan for that day of redemption. I mentioned Colossians earlier. This is how Paul speaks in Colossians 1. I'm going to read an extended passage, but think about those themes, reconciliation and unity that Paul describes here, the second Adam. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Very much sounds like Ephesians. Verse 19, Colossians 1. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. There's that same summing up, that reconciliation. Verse 21 there in Colossians 1 that I'll read. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, we talked about sin coming in in our genealogies like a relay race from the first Adam all the way down, sin. Paul tells us something about that in chapter 2. Engaged in evil deeds, yet, verse 22, Colossians 1, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. We are reconciled through Christ's work. And there is coming a final day when we will all be put into harmony together, united is the church. He's going to take all of those pieces that are alienated, all that disorder, and we can go to the end and read in Revelation, he's going to sum it all up in Christ. Full unity. We attended Bellevue for many years, and I can remember a lot of things Dr. Rogers said, but on this theme, I haven't ever forgotten it. Dr. Rogers used to tell a story when we were there. Someone came up to him and said, What's this world coming to? You know, just a flippant statement. And he would always answer, it's coming to Jesus. That, that, that's what's happening very simply in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. It's the now and, and not yet. We are reconciled to God through Christ. And there will be a day where everything is summed up in Christ. We sang it today. Come behold the wondrous mystery Slain by death, the God of life, but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is a life. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected, as we will be when he comes. In the book of Ephesians, Paul wants those brothers and sisters there and us by application to understand his saving purposes making known to us the mystery of his will, revealing his final goal, like that final plan in the design documents, the uniting of all things in heaven and earth, the cosmos and the church to Christ. 
As I said, next week, there'll be a slower turn in those passages, but to continue on in our study of the entire book today, we want to move on. But one note that I do want to to say about this passage is Paul is worshiping, I've noted it already, in this eulogy, and, and we should do the same. He, he's, as part of this mystery, God is making known this coming consummation and the reality that Gentile and Jews are being fold in, folded into this consummation, the church. So I'll just do this in a cursory review, but if you look at the pronouns, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, who has blessed us just as he chose us. He predestined us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us. In him also we. And then we get to verse 13. Who's he talking about above 13? Jewish nation? Praise God for this passage. In him you, Gentiles, also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice that you, the participation in the new humanity by Christ's reconciling work, the inclusion of Gentiles, that's us, into these heavenly blessings, reconciliation and unity of Jew and Gentile by union with Christ, the reconciler. And Paul elaborates more on this in chapter 2. So, so look with me. We're gonna, the bus is going to keep going. Now we're in chapter 2. Thinking about those themes, reconciliation and unity. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You, Gentiles, you, Gentiles, formerly walked. And now look what Paul does in verse 3. Among them, we too, we too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. He's including himself in this. So as we think about the unity, the reconciliation, Paul's making it clear that all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile, had a sin problem, which we talked about from the garden. They were both alienated to God. They were united in one way in their deadness. And Paul goes on to say in this chapter, only owing to his grace, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. He wants this young church to understand again how bad their blindness was, who they see, how they've seen, and what they're supposed to do with this sight now, to use that metaphor. Look at verse 11 with me. Again, reading an extended passage. Therefore, remember. He's telling them what's happened. Therefore, remember that formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Look at the alienation. Separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to promise, no hope without God. That's, that's bleak. That was their plight. That was the alienation of the Gentiles. 
verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, Taylor prayed it this morning, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He brings reconciliation. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Reconciliation, reconciled, unity. No longer separate, there's peace. No longer alienation, there's reconciliation. No more enmity. There's a change in proximity, way off, way over there, brought near by the blood of Christ to God. Access. He's our Father. All this changed because of verse 14. One man, he himself is our peace. We have to keep in mind what Paul is doing when, he, when we think about identity formation. Right? There's, there's not a whole lot like it, though we are a diverse congregation as Grace Church. I think we're all Gentiles as far as I know, but we're still diverse. We're still different. I look out here and I see all kinds of differences. But in Paul's day, listen to historically the Jew and Gentile clash, which should make us marvel at what God has done in Christ for the Gentile application Gentiles. The Jew, quote, had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentile said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all nations that he made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. That's why Paul's reminder to this church is so crucial. He's reminding them what happened to them and what Christ has done for them. And it's only what Christ can do. They, they couldn't have been reconciled to one another together. Only Christ in His deepest redeeming and reconciling work. Well, in chapter 3, we're going to keep moving. In chapter 3, we, we have another long chapter where Paul is speaking about his ministry to the Gentiles. We know that Paul ministered to them. As one pastor said that I heard, he put his shoulder on the door and and pushed it in, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Just reading a few passages there in chapter 3, again, thinking about those two themes. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, here it is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, 
which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages had been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. We keep the themes of reconciled and unity on the forefront as we read a passage like that and think about what they felt like when they heard that from Paul. Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members speaking into what their unity meant. Well, in a very similar fashion as in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 that we looked at the summing up of all things in Christ, look at verses 9 and 10 here. Paul makes it clear that his wisdom, God's wisdom, through this multifaceted, united church, the inheritance of Christ will be made known. This reconciled group of people brought near by the blood of Christ unfolds in front of the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Another theme in this book, the cosmos. Angels, as it were, longing to look at the redemption of fallen man to the fame of the reconciler Jesus. This two people becoming one. This new humanity. Well, this new humanity, as he carries on in chapter 3, will need to be strengthened. They're going to need to understand Christ's love for them, and they're going to need to grow into maturity, especially as they live together in that pagan culture as Jew and Gentile. And so Paul, we won't read it, but his prayer, beginning in verse 14 and carrying on to the end of chapter 3, Paul prays those things for them, knowing that they will have it rough in that culture, especially a church like them. Well, we're going to continue on to chapter 4. We'll summarize some of this. We won't read as much. I have a few applications at the end of this. But when we get to chapter 4, as I said, it's very practical. So we have this reconciled unity, these themes. When Paul gets to chapter 4, he's going to explain to them what it means to live out these themes. What does it look like to be a new humanity? What does it look like to be united? Paul says they are to walk, verse 1, in a manner worthy of the calling which which they have been called, this holy unity together. That therefore links chapters 1 through 3 with chapters 4 through 6. So now it's the application. Paul says you're united now. You've got to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. He said, you're united. But in the church, just like us, we're not robots. Yes, we're called to, to live in unity, but there's a lot of diversity here. And so Paul goes on to talk about that in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, and he talks about the diversity of the people in that church and how it influences the unity. He talks about how Christ, the ascended Christ, give gifts to the church, prophets, pastors, teachers. There's all this diversity that helps with the unity, especially the maturing of the body. Look at verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by ways and carried out by every wind of dis- 
doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Here is this new humanity, the picture of this, this new people, Christ as their head. Very diverse, but they're united together. They're united by the one faith, one baptism, everything that Paul talked about in the beginning of chapter 4. This picture is the maturing of the new man. What does this new humanity look like? Well, the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5 is what Paul describes this new humanity to look like. Just in summary fashion, this new man, no more lies, but truth. You look at chapter 4, verse 25. All these contrasts, no more anger, but peace. No longer stealing, but working and being generous. No longer using your mouth for unwholesome language, as he goes into chapter 5. But for edification, no more drunkenness, he says in chapter 5. But you what? Walk by the Spirit. That's what this new human, this new man looks like, Christ as the head, this church. Now as we move towards the last part of Ephesians, Paul exhorts the believers to be strong in the Lord. Well, first he talks about the domestic responsibilities of the Ephesians. So in chapter 6, he covers families, marriage, and children. He wants to encourage them practically to submit to one another in these domestic realms. You can see his charge at the end of chapter, at the end of chapter, or 521 rather, 521. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now he's going to talk to them about what that looks like in the domestic realm, in their homes, in their marriages, with their children. Again, how this reconciliation this unity works itself out. A reconciled people are to live a life of holiness and unity. And then again, in summary fashion, as we move towards the last chapter, Paul exhorts the believers there to be strong in the Lord. Verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And he brings us into another theme that's so very prevalent. We've talked about it in this book. The spiritual realm. The heavenly places the cosmic realm. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 11. 612, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul wants them to understand that one day the full realization of the summing up of all things in Christ will happen and there will be no need for verse 12. Everything will finally be fulfilled and fully realized. But while they are here, they do not battle flesh and blood like us. Paul ends his letter with a note about his welfare and with the wonderful blessing we find at the end. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Peace, not alienation, reconciled by Christ. Grace poured out on this people, this new humanity, those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. So I understand that the foot was on the gas. We're going to take our time as we move through this book. I do have some applications that I want to share, but when you think about Ephesians, reconciliation and unity and those themes among others will come up over and over and over again 
Even more than those themes are perhaps seeing the fact that he is right in the middle of those themes. My prayer for you is to be enamored by Christ in the book of Ephesians. The greater need for the church at Ephesus was Jesus, just like us. They needed to understand in their identity formation that they had been reconciled to God by Christ, but they needed to know, spend time, commune with the reconciler. That's what we need. Well, as we close, I have five application sentences. Call it what you want. Maybe they're prayers. There could be more. But as we think about the book of Ephesians, what might it look like for this book to affect us? Okay, so I want to get under you. We have four months in the book of Ephesians. We just tasted. There's, there's, there's so much more of a meal that we're going to have in these four months. But what might it look like for us if we give ourselves to the God of this book? What's he up to? What's his heart for the church? Who are we? So I have five of them. One, Ephesians will help us know God better. Now you may be thinking, thank you for the Sunday school answer. We all have kids. What did you learn in Sunday school today? About God. Well, what did you learn about God? God. That's not what I'm saying. Lloyd-Jones said in his sermons on Ephesians, in his first introductory chapter with these words, this is what he said, the theme, I quote, of this epistle, first and foremost, is God, God the Father. This is the theme that controls everything else. There was never any danger that the Apostle Paul might forget it, for he of all men knew that all is of God and by God, and that him the glory must be given forever and ever. Amen. There's many themes that run through He also agrees because I read it about the two themes that we looked at, but there is no doubt that the main theme in every book is God, and we have such low views of Him, and I'm putting myself in that category. So might Ephesians help us grow in a greater view of who God is? You might ask yourself this week, when you're in it, and next week, what does this passage say about God? What is He up to? How is He described? The Trinity is everywhere, especially in the first chapter, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit stamped all over salvation history. Eternity past, present, and future. Go find Him there. You want to know God better? Dive headfirst into Ephesians. Number two, Ephesians will help stir our hearts to delight in Christ. These are not exhaustive, by the way, and not in order. If there ever was timber to steal a metaphor, to throw on the fires of our heart's devotion to Christ, whether it's a little itty-bitty ember or it's raging today. The wood in Ephesians is not wet. And you know what happens with wet wood. You throw it on a fire, it can snuff it out, or it just fills the whole house with smoke. We read so much of it today. I trust your heart was stirred. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just keep going. Redemption, adoption, predestination. But God, being rich in mercy, chapter 2, verse 4, raised us up together with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you were over there and now you're over here, formerly far off, brought near, only by Him. Chapter 3, verse 6, to be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. And we could go on and on and on. But Ephesians will help us in our devotion to Christ. There is a contrast in the book. You've probably seen it even before today. Paul makes sure that he tells them and that they understand who they were 
and who they are now. Remember, remember. He keeps saying that in chapter 2. Again, it's like he's showing them the depth of their blindness and the beauty of the physician that healed them. It's the same for us. That's, that's good news in the gospel. If you think about Paul, just for a moment, to use him, his worship in chapter 1 is not some sort of space filler for him. This man was a killer of Christians. We think about Judges. What happened in Judges? There was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Paul thought he himself was king, killing Christians, no doubt orphan kids, no doubt split families. You can go back and read it in Acts, Acts chapter 6, 7, 8, 9. Paul hated Christians. He did what was right in his own eyes, and then he met Jesus. And he's just writing Ephesians about the king who will come one day and sum up all things together. He loves the brethren. He makes sure they know that he's okay. He leans into this Gentile nation with Christ. He loves the congregations. He wants, to know, wants them to know the depths of the riches of Christ and the effect it has on their lives. And Paul is writing from experience, worshiping through this book. I mentioned John McKay, the president of Princeton earlier. He wrote this before the quote that I gave you. It's for the kids. It's my prayer. He writes, to this book, I owe my life. In 1903, he was 14, and he was out in the Scotland Highlands at night. And upon reading the book of Ephesians, he experienced, quote, a boyish rapture in the Highland Hills and made a passionate protestation to Jesus Christ among those rocks in the starlight. Everything was new. I had one new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. I pray that all of our teens in reading this book as we walk through, that that would happen to all of them, all of our kids. They would repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone. Perhaps even today if you're visiting, and not a lot of it makes sense as we read, it's such a dense book. And maybe you would say, I know I need to be reconciled. I know I'm alienated. The sermon's grace for you. Today is grace for you. Paul talks about that grace in chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved. So when Christ comes to the battleground because you've been fighting God all these years and you can't win to fight against the king, and the emissary comes, and it's Christ with love for you. And he says, lay your weapons down. I'm a good king. I will put my robe upon you. Do homage to me. Repent of your sin. Trust in all that I am for you, my death and resurrection. I will take you to my Father. I will bring you near. I will forgive your sins. I will make you clean. All of those are gospel promises. All of those are bound up in the passages we read. You just trust Him. Give your life to Him. Receive. You don't do anything. Paul said, by grace you have been saved through faith. Even the faith is a gift from Him. He makes enemies friends. This whole church is full of people who were once enemies and are now friends because of the Prince of Peace who came to us 
by grace and said, lay your weapons down. And by grace only we laid them down and saw his beauty and he brought us to his father. Would you do that today? Trust in Christ, his death and resurrection for you. Two more, and I'll be very, very brief. Three more. Ephesians helps us understand who we are, our identity. If Paul's doing identity formation, he can help us. I wonder how many of us struggle with our identities. That's me. We battle daily with principalities and unfortunately with flesh and blood. Ephesians uses words like in him, in Christ, adopted, saints, sealed in him. What would it look like to meditate on those words and ask God to help us understand who we are in him? We misinterpret our lives by our circumstances. I do that. What if we reinterpreted our lives based on what God says about us in his book? Namely, because we're walking through it, Ephesians. Number four, Ephesians will help us be better church members. I won't say much here, but how could it not? We have a diverse body, again, not Jew and Gentile, but we have our own challenges. We have, there are around every corner opportunities for us to be not in harmony. We need to know how to live and move together at Grace Church. I believe the book of Ephesians will help us. And finally, Ephesians will help us grow in our awareness of heavenly places. One of the reoccurring themes in Ephesians is heavenly places. Cosmos. Might the book of Ephesians help us to realize that we really don't fight against flesh and blood? There is a realm that we cannot see. This past week, Byron and Rick can attest to this because they're in my grace group. Week two, day five, there was a question. It was a good question. How does my view of death affect my lifestyle on earth? You should think about that. To steal that question and make it Ephesians-like, how would our view of spiritual realities affect the way we live on earth? Paul's in and out, heavenly places. I believe it'll help us as we think about it. I'm not suggesting some kind of sanctified Ghostbusters, right? Like that's not what I'm suggesting. But perhaps we would feel more rightly the weight of the armor that we're to put on and look with anticipation for the day that we lay it all down. There's so many other ways the Lord uses his word. You don't need a list from me. There's many ways he'll help us. We have the Holy Spirit. He'll apply his word. Even more than Grace Church, falling in love with the book of Ephesians. Again, my prayer is that we would fall in love and delight with Jesus again over and over and over. And unlike what happens in Revelation, Ephesians shows up there, the church at Ephesus, that by his grace, working together in unity, that we would not leave our first love, but that we would increase in our love to him. Well, in a moment, I'll close us in prayer We'll take a moment of corporate silence to consider one thing from the service. And then I'll give some practical instructions on the who and how as we partake in the supper. Before I close us in prayer, I want to read a quote which is about the Lord's Supper. So sermon over, I can put my microphone down on the bus. Maybe not, but I want to read a quote about the Lord's Supper because we're about to take it. And it speaks to the things that we were thinking about today. Quote, for John Calvin, the primary benefit of the Lord's Supper is that it strengthens our faith and our union with Christ. Communion with Christ, however, cannot be separated from the communion of the saints. 
Following Augustine, Calvin spoke of this horizontal aspect of the Lord's Supper as a bond of love. So a horizontal, it's certainly vertical, horizontal bond of love. The Supper is something that is to unite believers and encourage them to love one another. Paul tells us that Christ has only one body of which he makes us all partakers. Therefore, we are all one body. According to Calvin, the bread and the supper provides an illustration of the unity we are to have. We are to be joined together without division, just as the many grains in the bread are joined together to form a single loaf. Do you see in the supper today that we will take in a moment those themes, reconciliation and unity. God has reconciled us to him through the blood of Christ and his broken body. And we come together. We don't take the meal at home around the table with our family. This is the family that we take it with, an ordinance of the church. The animosity and hatred put away, not by men, but Christ. The promise of the summing up of all things in Christ is in this meal as well. There's a a foretaste that one day, we are reconciled now, but one day, all things will be summed up in Christ. We're going to sing, after I pray in corporate silence, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Well, let's pray together. Father, my prayer for us is that you... Again, I'll pray it again, that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. I pray that our our hearts would be enlightened so that we would know the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. Father, we pray that you would use these next four months in ways that we can't even imagine, but we do pray that you'd help us to live as a reconciled people, a united people to you, one in unity. I pray that that as it were, that we would wrap ourselves up in the, the quilt of the book of Ephesians and lay our heads at your chest, O Jesus, where there is so much room for us. And I pray that As we sing, we would do so with hearts that love you. And as we partake of this meal, that you would again preach the gospel to us in the elements, pointing our hearts away from ourselves, our plans, and help us to look to you and what you're doing for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name.